0: Any movie buff probably understands the term Easter egg. You know what an Easter egg is in a movie? I'm not talking about the little colorful things we put out for the kids to hunt. Easter eggs in movies are those things that are hidden so that you can you can see something else later. So they, they said it, it hints at something else down the road. Uh, and in the past ten years, you can argue that Marvel movies have been pretty popular. And they are some of the most famous examples of movies with Easter eggs. Um, little hints, those little pictures of what's to come along the way, like Captain America's shield on Tony Stark or Iron Man's workbench. It was there, and if you saw it, you knew, oh, you know what's coming next. Or the side view of a villain in the end credits scene. You know, a Marvel movie, you know there's usually at least one end credits scene. You have to sit in the movie theater the whole time. Because if you don't, you miss it. Because an Easter egg's hit or just those little breadcrumbs that move the story along. When I was in elementary school, uh, my kids think that's when the dinosaurs roam the earth, but when I was there, I discovered a book that quickly became one of my all time favorites. Um, it's called The Westing Game. I don't know if you've ever it. Shiloh and I have read the Westing Game, so he's up here jumping up and down and see. Um, the Westing Game is, is a little story, and it's a mystery within a story. <laughs> As you read the story, there are little breadcrumbs along the way, a little, little plot twists. As you try to figure out, the whole thing starts with a whole bunch of random people who seem to have no connection, who have been given up luxury apartments in an apartment building for no reason. And there's the, the Westing House up on top of the mountain hill there. And they find the body of Mr. Westing early in the in the book. And the entire book is about trying to figure out who the killer is and all those things. And there are little clues along the way to get to this big break climax. And the truth be told, those are the stories that I like. The stories that leave you guessing until the repeat. Uh, Westing Game is one of the few books that even when I pick it up now and I know the end, I still guess along the way. Uh, kind of movies that I watch. Carrie doesn't like to watch those movies with me. Because most of the time, if it's a mystery, I know what it is. And I'm like, ugh. I like the ones that make me guess. And the ones that make me go, oh. And there's little breadcrumbs. There's little things along the way. This week, we begin our Christmas series. I know you're going, it's early. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. Oh, well. I want to remind you that God began planning Christmas long before he said, let there be light. So... This series, for me, has been a long time coming. It's it's a study that I've done personally, and I've talked with people. It comes from a place within me that's really grieved by biblical illiteracy in our world. The fact that a lot of people don't know their Bible. They don't know what's in the Bible. They don't know the truth that it contains. We seem to forget sometimes that Paul and Peter and the other apostles only had the Old Testament in order to witness about Jesus. You know, for us, if somebody comes and asks us about Jesus, we turn to the book of John, or we turn to the book of Matthew, or we turn to, to over to the Pauline epistles, and we go from there. But for Paul, and for Peter, and for all the other apostles, they just had the Old Testament. There was a story we read in our Bible reading here this week about Philip and the Ethiopian. And they he comes along, and, he's, and he, the Spirit moves him to the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian is reading in the book of Isaiah, and the Bible says, and starting from there... He revealed to him everything the Scripture said about Jesus, and so most of us really couldn't use the Old Testament very well to witness to somebody about the Messiah of God. Most of us would go, "Well, He promised it. and that's about where we stop. Um, and that's not—that's not—that's not a swipe at anybody. It's just where we are because we've spent so much time. Focusing as New Testament believers on the New Testament, that sometimes we forget that there were little breadcrumbs, little pictures throughout the Old Testament of Jesus. And so, our our series for the next few weeks leading up to Christmas is peeking at the presence, the little pictures of the Christ in the Old Testament. And so, we're going to look at a lot of these things. Much of what I say in these sermons may not be new. <laughs> um, I almost hesitate to call them servants. Um, They're not going to be firing brimstone. I may not jump up and down very much. Um, That may be more teaching than preaching. Uh, But what I hope we gain is in awe in God's working in Scripture. Understanding that Jesus in his life was being painted long before the first Christmas. And in my mind, there is nothing more exciting than Jesus. There's nothing more exciting than than, than what's to come. And and when we look at this, it excites me to see Jesus in new ways in the Old Testament. It excites me to go, that's Jesus. That's this. That's what's going to come. And so our first series in this, our first series, our first sermon in this series, is probably the most straightforward picture of Jesus we have in the Old Testament. It's there in Genesis chapter 22 that I just spoke with the kids about and it's there in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took him with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, And he said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the top of the altar of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. So today, it is said it will be provided on the Lord's Mount. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you and we praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time, Father, to use it for your glory. Father, use me as the vessel of the words that I speak to yours and yours alone. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus and for his son. And all God's people said. Amen. Now, you may see the obvious aspects of Jesus' story in this passage. My question is, do you have a complete picture of how this story foreshadows the coming of the Son? It's always been an interesting story to me. Uh, It's a heartbreaking story when you're a parent to think about what God is asking him to do and the faith that it must have taken to do that. But when we look at this in terms of a picture of Jesus, the first thing we have to see is that they were both sons of promise that came from miraculous births. Well, not directly in this passage, no discussion of Isaac as a shadow of Jesus is complete without this point. Remember, Abraham was promised descendants at 75 years old. God came and said, Abram. Just now, you know, righteous father. I'm gonna make you Abraham, a father of many, at 75 years old. Most of the men in the room, if we're 75, we're probably not thinking I'm gonna start a family right now. That's probably not the first thing that happens. So, not to mention his wife wasn't far behind him in age. And so, 15 years later, when he's 90, God renews the promise. Okay, and then 10 years later. Isaac was born. Isaac, the child of promise. Sarah was ninety years old when Isaac was conceived. <coughs> so she was either ninety or ninety-one when he was born. A miraculous birth. Of course, Jesus was prophesied all through the Old Testament and was born of the Virgin. Both were sons of promise. Both had this commonality, and they were both unique sons loved by their fathers. Probably one of the most heartbreaking lines of all the scripture is when God says to him, take your son, <coughs> your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the place of Moriah that I'm going to show you and sacrifice him to me. whom you love. We know that Isaac isn't his only son, but he is the only <laughs> son got I. Uh, promise. He has another son, right? The Ishmael, the wild donkey of a man. The one who to this day his descendants are fighting against the people of God. You know that family family rebellion ain't nothing like a family reunion, right? I mean there it is. They're always against each other. We know he's not the only son, but he's the son begat of the promise. He's the unique son to all whom all the promises of God were tied and Abraham loved it. Abraham loved it. How many of us want to give up something that we love, much less someone that we love? But here, Abraham is called to do this thing. Now, this wasn't just to be any sacrifice. This was the sacrifice for Abraham of everything that God had promised. We can't leave that point alone. Because Isaac wasn't just his son that he loved. Isaac was the one that all the promises were tied to. Isaac was the one where if Isaac isn't there, the descendants and the generations go away. The promise of the land goes away. This was literally a test of whether Abraham was going to trust in the gift or trust in the giver. That was the test. Abraham, do you trust me or do you trust what I have given to you? And so here, Isaac is the unique son loved by his father, but Jesus, we know, is proclaimed to be my God, His Son, in whom He is well pleased. It's said in almost all the Gospels, right? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Do what He tells you to do. Again, in Scripture, other people are called the children of God. Even angels are called sons of God. But in John 3.16, it says, He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the unique Son whom God loves that is tied to all promises. It's the same a unique son in whom all the promises of God are tied. These are Isaac and Jesus. And of course, the place of sacrifice for both is Jerusalem. Abraham is told to go to the land of Moriah. This land is the mountain range of Jerusalem where Calvary would be thousands of years later. 2 Chronicles 3.1, it says that Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the site David had prepared for the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And thousands of years later, Jesus was led away from this temple built on Mount Moriah to be sacrificed on a mountain in the land of Moriah. That's exciting to me when you see in Genesis, we're talking the first book of the Bible. 22 chapters in, we're already seeing a picture of what God has planned. Jesus was never the second choice. Jesus was never plan B. Jesus was always plan A. They were each made to carry the wood on which they were to be sacrificed. Can you imagine? I got a kid who uh, he likes to help. But if I said, here bud, carry this wood up the mountain for me, you know, it would probably be a little bit harder for me to get him to do that. <laughs> Abraham gave him the wood to carry for the sacrifice. In John 19, 17, it says, carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called the Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. They both carried the wood with their sacrifice. They both carried the instrument of death. And just as Isaac was to take the place of the lamb for sacrifice, so Jesus became the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I always have pictured this scene as Abraham and Isaac walk up the mountain. (laughs) Because he asked him, and I have a feeling... The writer of Genesis didn't put every word that was said on the way up the mountain just for Tom's sake. Because Isaac's a young man or a young boy walking with his father, and he knows what goes on in the sacrifice. And so he says, Hey, Daddy, um, we've got the wood, we've got the knife, we've got the fire. Daddy, there's no lamb. Where, where's the lamb? I just had this feeling that he walked on a little further and he said again, hey daddy um, I know you said that, that God would provide the lamb um, but we're on a mountain the lambs are usually not up here that, where, where's Where's the lamb? I think Isaac was probably a little bit of a smart kid he probably knew that something was going on as he kept walking up the mountain and he gets up there at the top and you find all of these things that happen." That where's the lamb? Of course, Jesus becomes the Passover lamb, the lamb of atonement, the one who pays for sins. But you know, they each submitted voluntarily to the will of their father. Now you're going, Brother Troy, it doesn't say that. (laughs) You don't read that in the text. It doesn't say, and Isaac laid down for his day. But I believe it's in the context Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Isaac, at this point, theologians say, is somewhere between the ages of 8 and 16 years old. Yet the text simply says, and Abraham bound his son and placed him on top of the earth. I have an eight year old. And I'm less than half of Abraham's age. And the only way that I would be able to tie that boy up if he was panicked because he saw an altar and he didn't see a lamb and daddy says, Come here, son, let me tie you up, is if I knocked him out. (laughs) So I know by reading the text and knowing what's going on here that Isaac trusted his daddy in that moment. Because Isaac let himself be bound up. Isaac voluntarily submitted to the will of his father. I believe that Isaac fully knew by the time he reached the top of that mountain what was going to happen. And when his father asked him to stay still so he could tie him up, he trusted him and allowed him to do so, submitting to the will of the father, willingly giving up his freedom and potentially his life for the love of his father. And Jesus in the garden cried out, Father, if there's If if this could happen any other way, I don't want to drink this cup, but I'll do it if you need me to. John 10, 18 says, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again, but I have received this command from my Father. In both of these instances, the Son submitted to the will of the Father. And then we have a departure from the picture. Then we have a major difference in this picture of Christ. The picture's still there, but the picture isn't in Isaac any longer. Just as Abraham passes the test and proves that he trusts the giver more than the gift, God stops him from sacrificing his son and instead provides a ram for sacrifice. In Isaac, we have a picture of Jesus as the only son Deeply loved by his father. Being led to sacrifice. But then the shift occurs and we see the ram. And in the ram we have a second picture of Jesus. We have a second picture of Jesus. <coughs> in the ram we see an innocent victim die as a substitute for another. Its blood was spilt so that another could go free and be saved That's Jesus. The Lamb of God who died so that we don't have to. Who died so that we don't have to feel the fire. The ram is is Jesus as well. Abraham called the place Moriah. The Lord will provide. And 4,000 years later, in the same area, God did exactly that because he loved the world so much, he gave his only begotten son. Genesis 22, we had a picture of Jesus. We had a picture of Christmas. So what about us? How does this affect our lives? You may be going now, okay, that was your stuff. That was a lot, and I see it, but what does that do for me? For me, the point is this. God loved us so much that he began preparing the world for his blessings with the Father of From the very beginning, God began setting the place for Christ to come into the world. He did this with prophecies. He did it with pictures. He did it with promises. You know, everybody's different. In case y'all didn't know that. Everybody's different. And everybody will be affected by different stories. In the secular realm, I like mysteries. I like I like supernatural things. I like to read things that are that are kind of out there that I have to really dwell on. Other people just want to read harder books. God knows and knew that everybody's affected by different stories, and so he began giving pictures of Christ in different ways and at different times to prepare humanity and to give us the tools to share this hope with those around us. He gave us those. The point for me is that is that God began planning this when the world began. And he wanted us to have the tools to be able to share what he was doing with those around us. And so he began to put these pictures. If nothing else this morning, we should walk away in awe of the great planning and power of God that, takes, that places this before us long before Jesus was born again. Amazing to me that God didn't just surprise us with Jesus. The thing that has always boggled my mind about first century Judea is how people who knew all the stories of the Old Testament could completely miss the person of God. Maybe this morning, you you came thinking, man, I really don't like the Old Testament. There are people who are that way, I know. I'm not one of those. I love the Old Testament. But maybe you came in thinking, what does the Old Testament have for me? I'm hoping this morning you get with a new understanding of what it has. Maybe this morning you've been struggling somewhere. You've been struggling with all of the stuff For the first year ever, you can ask Gary, for the first year ever, I had a hard time getting ready for Christmas. Our tree didn't go up until November. Can you imagine me? I mean, but there was just something about the stuff for me this year that was so hard. But God began giving us a little peek way back then. So that we could drown out the stuff and see the message. The greatest gift that ever came came on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago. But God gave us hints all along the way to look and say, oh, that's Him. Maybe this morning you want to pray. The altar's open, I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to start a missionary ministry. <laughs> Maybe this morning you just want, to, just want to share something that God has done for you this week. Now's the time to do it. Maybe though you've never known Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've never known the one who died on the cross to take your sins so that you don't have to die. Now's the time. You just walk down to say, Brother I want to know Jesus and we'll go from there. But wherever you're at, whatever you need, give it to Him. let pray to Him. Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you and praise you for your blessings.